We are on a holiday weekend, interestingly enough, in the middle of these profiles. Uh, Memorial Day, I think at its best, other than sales and a day off, is about remembering the people who've gone before and have given their lives uh, for the freedom that you and I enjoy and frankly take for granted. And what we're looking at in the book of Acts is we've reached this part where there are four biographies that Luke writes back to back about people that made a difference, people that were used by God to push the gospel from a small group of Jews in one city, Jerusalem, and pushed it out to Samaria and Judea and the the ends of the known world. God uses people. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at Stephen, and Stephen gave his life, literally, for the cause of Jesus. And we remember him, and we hope that he inspires us to give our lives away as well. And then last week, we had George Verwer. He's not in the book of Acts, so he's old enough to be in the book of Acts. But how many of you were here last Sunday? I mean, this, he was just amazing. Come on. And at the end, in worship, lifting up the globe, just praying that people would uh, here, take the cause of Jesus seriously. And I even, if you came at night, he even gave me his global jacket. I mean, come on. And for $100,000, I will sell it to you. So he said he got $90,000 for it once in a charitable thing. But for $100K, I'm willing to give it up tomorrow. So um, we, but, but really he reminded us that God uses mess ups. And he shared a story. He was an ordinary guy. And if you feel like you've made a mistake and you've failed or you don't know enough or you haven't done enough, then George reminded us, like from Acts, that God uses anyone who's willing to be useful and is willing to follow Jesus. So now we're going to move over to Philip. This week and next week, we're going to look at Philip in Acts 8. And well, let's just read the text a bit. And we're just going to go along. We'll look at the first half and the second half next Sunday. We read it from 8.1, but let's just read it again. Um, Saul approved of their killing him, Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. We looked at it last time. Stephen's death leads to a whole wave of, of evil against the church, but we see that God does use that. Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So God, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he's not the author of evil, but he can use it for good. So even when we have bad things come our way, that does not mean that's the end of the story. God can use even those negative things and turn it around for good. And we're going to see one this week. Philip, verse 5, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So, so some people were used by God, even in the middle of this wave of persecution, to go to places they don't normally go. Now, if you and I want to be like George Verwer was stirring us to be, people who are useful to God, you need to know this. There are the places I think that God is sending me, and then there are the places that God is really sending me. All of us have an understanding 
and a thought and a view on how I'm going to be useful for God. But what we see from the text is he uses persecution and he takes a Jew named Philip and he brings him to a land of Samaria. Now, you hear Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Hillsborough, Beaverton, Aloha, Banks, Forest Grove. All, they're just like names. But this is where a little bit of background is going to really help. And if you already know the Bible, just smile and wave and nod and pretend it's brand new. But if you're new to the Bible, maybe this will help unpack the significance. Because this event is a cornerstone in the changing of the trajectory of the church. And we're still feeling the effects today. Uh, Samaria. Uh, We're going to look at a little bit of a map. Some of you in the back, you're struggling. Again, it's a map, you know. Um, Here we go. Samaria is right in the middle there. I even have a fancy, oh, look at that. George's got a globe. I got a pointer, okay? I'm pretty lame. But um, in in the bottom, we got Jerusalem. That's where the gospel starts. It's actually on a mountain. It's high elevation. So he goes down to Samaria. Doesn't mean he goes south. He actually goes north. He goes down the mountain into an area where Jews did not go. Now, for a thousand years, there have been conflict. You think you got family issues? You think you have issues with an uncle or a brother or a sister or mother-in-law? A thousand years of tension between two groups of people. Now, the whole of the land that you're looking at was a gift from God. He promised Abram, I'm going to give your descendants this land. You're going to worship me. You're going to know me. They get in the land, and under King David, it has never been better. All of these 12 tribes, descendants of Abram, are all working united. But then David dies. Solomon, his son, isn't as wise, even though he's a wise king. But he's not as wise because his kids break up the kingdom and they're split north and south. So the southern kingdom is called Judea or Judah. And the northern kingdom, everything up here is Israel. And those 10 tribes up in the north do not get along with their brothers and sisters In the south, there's tension, but it gets worse. About 700 years before Jesus, an other foreign empire, the Assyrians, step in. Again, this may seem dull, but it's huge to the significance of Philip's ministry. The Assyrians come in and they obliterate all the northern area. Everything up here, especially this area called Samaria. They send the Jews away, but those that are left do what they should never have done. When God sent his people in the land, he was clear about one thing. Don't marry the locals, not because he's anti the locals, but because the local people uh, serve foreign gods. They don't worship the creator God. They don't honor the creator God. They worship false gods. So he knows if you marry another person who's following another God, they'll drag you down. But what happens is because the people in the north, so many of their countrymen had been sent away, they cave in. And so they marry the Assyrians. Now, those in the south, Jerusalem, Judea, that area, they see this as the ultimate rebellion against God. So even when they get their land back, so to speak, and the Jews in the south are later crushed and they come back, there's no communication between north and south. The Samaritans were seen by the Jews as total cop-outs. They're no longer God's people and they've intermarried, and their religion is mixed. And so even theologically, in the South, they read the entire Bible, the books of Moses, the first five books, and the prophets, and the writings, and the Psalms. But the Samaritans, they only read the first five books of the Bible. Uh, All of the people were to worship at the temple. The temple is in the South in Jerusalem, but 400 years 
before Jesus comes, the Samaritans, as a snub to their brothers and sisters, they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And this was seen as the utter rejection. They don't follow the right God, they don't follow the right Bible, and they don't worship at the right place. So in the time of Jesus, and if you look in the back of your Bible, if there's any maps, when Jesus is traveling, Jesus does most of his ministry in the south and then up in the north in Galilee. You only have one record of him in John 4 in Samaria with the woman at the well. Does that sound like a familiar story? Most of Jesus' work is in the north and in the south. And so much so, they hated the Samaritans so much. If you're traveling, look for us, if you're in southern Oregon and you live in Medford and you can't stand Eugene because there's a duck there or two, and, and, and you, you come into Portland, right? I-5 is the straight highway up. But let's just say you hate the duck so much that you decide to drive to Bend and then to Portland so as to avoid Eugene. That's exactly what the Jews did. It took twice as long. They would cross um, the Jordan River and they would travel all the way to the side and go up to Galilee in order to avoid Samaria. If you love God, you don't even walk on that land. It's that bad. Now, what does this background have to do with the encounter? Look at what we see in verse 5. Philip went down to city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Look at what the gospel does. We need to get this. When we really encounter Jesus, when we fall in love with God, even the biggest barriers that we have, all of us have angst with someone or against something. But when you encounter Jesus, he deals with our prejudice. He deals with our pride. He deals with our issues. He deals with the people we don't want to be around. And love begins to break down the barriers. The Bible does not tell us why. But Philip, because of the persecution, does not do what the other Jews would do, which is to go around Samaria up to the north. He goes through a land that is hated. And he does more than just travel through. He preaches the Messiah there. Now what happens when Philip steps out in faith? Verse 6 The crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed. So the same Holy Spirit, catch this, that's at work in Jerusalem is the same Holy Spirit that's at work in Samaria. The same Holy Spirit that's at work in the apostles. Remember, Philip is not an apostle. He's not one of the 12. But the same Holy Spirit's at work in Philip. He's a deacon. He's a leader. He's a servant. But the same spirit, the same healings, because look, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There's, there's great joy in the city. There was great joy. There's healing. There's demonic powers being destroyed in Jerusalem, and we're seeing the same work, the same work, same God, same spirit. This is going to come into play when we get to the end of our time. What am I here to say? I'm here to say that all of us are looking at times for an open door. If you're following Jesus, you probably want to be useful, right? You probably want to make your life count. Well, how do I know where God is opening a door? How do I discern it? Well, to uncomplicate it, consider this. Wherever God sends you is an open door. And that's what we see for Philip. He didn't intend on going here. He wasn't planning a vacation here. He didn't get transferred by intel there. He, he ends up, because of a negative experience, seeing a chance 
to reach out to people who are far from Jesus. Wherever God sends you, so you may be asking, God, where are you going to use me? Well, let me just ask you, where has God put you? The places where God puts us oftentimes don't seem the most attractive. They don't seem the most open. You're working at that job. You're like, people don't want to hear about Jesus here, but that is your open door. You're going to class. You're like, man, I just want to get out of school. I just want to finish. I want to get on with the rest of my life. But that classroom, that school is where God's put you. Well, this is just a temporary like housing situation. I got roommates here or I'm in an apartment now, but I'm dreaming of my own home. Wherever God puts you is your open door. So many times we're looking for the, for the big opportunity and we forget that God's given us an opportunity right here and right now. You see, God's plan A is already being executed in your world. And his plan A is where he's put you. And even if it's tough, and even if it's hard as granite, and even if you're not seeing fruit, think about Philip. He's going to a city where nobody else goes. But the Spirit shows up in power because Philip steps out in the faith. And I think... The same thing could be said for us. There are all sorts of people in this room who are stepping out of their comfort zone and being used by God in big ways and in small ways. We want to celebrate that. Remember, our study in Acts is not about an ancient church. It's about our church. It's not about what God did 2,000 years ago. It's about what God is doing in our world right now. And so we want to share some stories this morning about what the Spirit is doing. I think Penny, I think you're on the side over here. Penny, uh, Stady's going to come up. And she is one of our leaders here. Uh, she's a deacon and on staff at the church. And we just want to hear, like, because you hear about Philip and Samaria. But what about us in our world? Hi, Penny. Morning. Uh, I know you love to be on a stage. And I know you love a microphone. No. No, she doesn't. <laughs> but she was kind enough to uh, uh, oblige. So um, you, you work for the church. How, how long now? Seven uh, years? Eight? Six years. Six years. And before that, what were you doing, like, work-wise? Uh, work-wise, I worked for about three years at Aloha High School. And okay. prior to that, just home raising the girls. Raising girls and then work for Aloha High School. And then how did you even, like, hear about the job? Did someone tell you about it? Or are you, like... Uh, yeah, I was invited in by Todd Newell to okay. come in and... So one of our leaders said, hey, you're gifted, you're serving, maybe you could do it here. And what was your first job at the church? What did you do early on? administrative assistant for one of two pastors, one for Hear the Cry and one for house churches. Okay, so house churches, mission communities. Mm -hmm. So Hear the Cry, this can be confusing for some. What is Hear the Cry, like in your own lingo? You've been with it for six years. Um, Hear the Cry is um, one of the ministries of the church that we support the poor, the orphan, and the widow, both locally and globally. Okay, so there are places here and around the world where we're helping uh, to bring justice to bring goodness, to bring the gospel through the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And so you, you take like a, is it a trip a year to different places? About once a year. About once a year. And so just you need to know that 10% of what you give goes to this fund. You don't have to give above and beyond. If you give to God's work, 10% goes directly to this work and it fuels uh, good things in Jesus' name. And so you're going on a trip a year. Do you usually plan which one you're going to? That's like a loaded question. It is. You're like, Penny's the ultimate planner. She's got everything. And as a matter of fact, how many people a year on average, uh, what do you do with Hair of the Cry? Maybe you can actually tell them. Um, I organize and kind of manage all the trips and teams that go out uh, globally. Right. So so globally, all the ones going to Nicaragua and Uganda and all around the world, 
Um, if you go on one of these trips, you'll probably interface with Penny at some point. And so there was an earthquake end of April, April 25th, I think, uh, in Nepal. And all of us heard about it. Many of us have given towards it. And you ended up going. Like, how in the world did that happen? Um, I had an email come through from one of the people that we partner with, Restore International, right. looking for some people that were available to just pack up and go and 48 hours be on a plane headed to Nepal. So we're already in Nepal. We're already helping Restore that's serving in Nepal. 48-hour mm-hmm. notice. Like, did you immediately say, yeah, I'm game? Or like, well, how in the world did you end up on the plane? Um, well, I was pretty sure that when the email came, yeah. I read it and felt like yeah. it was sent to me on purpose, that there was a reason that it was in my inbox. And so first checked with my husband to see, yeah. you know, get his take on it. You were gone thought. on Mother's Day. I was gone on Mother's yeah. Day. And uh, yeah, and he was in favor. And so then checked in with my boss to say, yeah. hey, what do you think? And there we go. And so within 48 hours, you're flying to L.A., you're, you're going to... And what, what did you do there? What, like, what was the scope of what you were doing? A uh, couple things. One is in Nepal, Restore International has an orphan home. They have six girls uh, in the homes who wanted to check on the girls, check yeah. on the home, make sure that they were safe and stable. I mean, they've already had a pretty disrupted life. So yeah. wanted to take care of them, spend some time with them, and then just go out into the community and serve, just help yeah. uh, do a lot of demolition to help them prepare to rebuild. You doing demo. Yeah, <laughs> glam meets demo. So you're, I actually saw your photos, and you're just like literally removing rubble, right? Yeah. And you're there, and another earthquake happens. Right. And wh- wh- where were you? Like, where um, were you? When, uh, when like it hit, strange we had CNN just, interview. just finished up working for the yeah. day. We're going to do about a half a day uh, doing some demolition, and then got out. We were driving in a car on a road that was pretty open with no tall buildings next to us, which was a huge blessing. And so we're in a car, and just the earthquake was so powerful that we could feel it even as we're driving. So we stopped and just kind of let it Let it pass. Let the earthquake go. Yeah, it was about 30 seconds, which is pretty long. And then anything that the Lord stirred in your heart while you were there, anything that you learned from the experience? You know, um, one is just um, just being open to hear the Spirit and yeah. being willing to say yes is is huge. And yeah. just um, the huge reminder that God is amazingly powerful and good. And just He loves people all across the world. I mean, yeah. people that, you know, we don't know, we don't understand their language. But uh, He just calls us to go in and just work side by side with them. Yeah. When you were at Aloha High School, did you ever think you'd go to Nepal? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Penny Stady. Thank you for serving. And so I wanted you to catch that, for one, to hear about what God's doing through this community and the leaders that he's brought here and the good work that is happening when you don't even realize it. But more than that, I just wanted you to catch that she was in Aloha High School as an administrative assistant not knowing that God would open up the door for, at the church, not knowing that here the cry would be in Nepal, not knowing that an earthquake would happen, not knowing. But those little steps of obedience open doors for more opportunities. So for her, the open door was right there. She was already serving in an area, and an email comes in, and it's about saying yes to the thing that God says yes to. Now, that, that's not the only thing that's happening. So Philip does his work, but let's just read a little more because it's not all good. Look at verse nine. 
Now, for some time, a man named Simon had preached, had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. We have writings outside of the Bible about Simon the sorcerer. He was known to some as a deity, a God incarnate. And there are statues put up in the Roman Empire to Simon. So he is someone that was a person of influence, but it wasn't influence in the right sense. Verse 11, they followed him because he amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. What we see is that when you and I go out to obey, there are always multiple things happening at play. There's the good news of Jesus, you, who's embraced the power of God and the spirit of God and the love of God, but there are competitive powers in the workplace where you live. It's not like we go out to preach the gospel to an audience that's blank in a community that has no belief system. There is always a competitor. And here in Samaria, it was Simon. But this is a great reminder. While there is great power that's opposed to Jesus, and you think about America today, you think about our system today, 50, 60 years ago, it seemed like it was in vogue to follow Jesus if you're an American. And more and more, it's becoming less popular. It's becoming less acceptable to believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's becoming less um, good for, to follow biblical values when it comes to sexuality, it comes to marriage, when it comes to ethics. Following Jesus seemingly is being pushed to the background. Am I alone in that? No, I think we see that. But let's be reminded with Philip and Samaria that there is no greater power than Jesus. And what we see in Samaria is that the other power is loud and it's at the forefront. But when you and I step up and engage the culture with good news, Philip is not slamming anyone. He's simply demonstrating what it is to follow Jesus. He's showing the love of God. He's praying for people and God's following it up with signs and wonders. As he steps out and lives the Jesus life, Jesus wins in Samaria. And if you want to see, and I want to see a move of God in our day, it comes to you and I stepping out and stepping up and trusting that God is going to back up his word with action. And I pray that happens in our day. But, but as they're preaching, something else happens. Let's just keep reading. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. So two key apostles, Peter and John, go uh, up to visit. And when they arrive, they pray for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now you want to talk about an awkward phrase. This is totally, this is one of those controversial ones we'll get back to in a couple of minutes. They prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. I thought you got the Holy Spirit when you believed. I thought that without the Spirit, you can't believe. It's kind of like what Jesus said. So what's going on here, we'll get to that in a minute. Because the Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What, what can we get from this? 
First, we saw that wherever God sends you is your open door. And now I want you to remember that you have an important part to play. What we see in Samaria is not one man doing all the work, not one leader. You have Philip in obedience, going to an unpopular place, preaching the gospel. But then the rest of the church hears about it. And this is huge. Just like one person goes into Nepal to help out a few orphans. But then a church, our church, steps in and and says, we want to help and back up. And then there's an earthquake. And then there's an email that goes out. Hey, can someone come and help us immediately now? And 48 hours later, Penny jumps on the plane on behalf of all of us and goes and shares the love of God. You have an important part to play. Now, that's not just in the global story. We're not trying to highlight these international trips to say that if you never leave and get your passport stamped, you're subpar. As a Christian, no, you're missing the point. The point is God has already given you opportunities, and when he opens up the next one, remember what you're doing really matters. And for most of us, it's small, it seems insignificant, it seems back office. Most of us are not going to stand up like Philip and see people have demons cast out and healings happen. Most of us are not going to be Peter and John and lay hands on people and the Spirit comes on them. But every single person matters, and everyone has a part to play. And that's why, as a community, we value the gathering on the weekend and the scattering throughout the week. If you're new here, you're going to hear it again and again. We're not just a church that meets. For us, church is not an hour and a half time block on a Sunday. Church is a family doing Jesus together and following Jesus together. So we hear about the things here on a Sunday, sure, but we live it out, and I hope that you're a part of one of the communities here. We call them missional communities on purpose because here's the logic. God's got a mission for everybody. And in these communities, we're not going to be idealistic. Not everyone in your community is, is going to reach the same person at the same place at the same time. No, but we can love one another. We can encourage one another. We can pray for one another. And there are times when we can tag team and pool our resources and serve. I think of the missional community de- dedicated to foster parents night out. And once a month, they come from different places and do different stuff, but they choose to serve those foster parents in our community together. The point is, you have a part to play. So please get connected and stay connected, because if we're not connected, we may miss out on some opportunities that God is wanting to put in front of us. But if we're isolated, we may not see it. So if you've yet to get connected, go to our info booth and talk to one of our leaders, and we'd love to get you in one of those groups. Now, let's just get back to the text and the whole what's actually happening here. Because we see that Peter and John realize they don't have the Holy Spirit. Three different takes on this by various scholars, and I'll give you my opinion, but all of them have a little bit of data in their favor. The first is done by traditionalists, whether it's Roman Catholic churches or Episcopal Anglican or more traditional churches. And they look at this text and they say, see, what God is instituting here is a way for people's faith to be confirmed. Some of you grew up in a church where you were baptized and then confirmed. They get it from this text. Because here in this text, they hear the gospel and are baptized, right? But then the leaders come, those with apostolic authority, those who are sent from Jesus, and they lay hands on them. They receive the Spirit, this confirming work of God uh, in their lives. And they'll take this text. Now, I don't 
believe that's what Luke is trying to get at, just read the rest of Acts. Acts 10, the Spirit comes before they're baptized and no one lays hands on them. So, so I don't think this is what's happening here, but some people see it that this is in view. The second one is that there are two stages of our becoming a follower of Jesus. The first stage is faith and baptism. So you come, you hear the gospel, and you believe it, and then you're, that you're baptized in water. And then the second experience, separate with it, with the evidence mostly of speaking in tongues, because the only way that they know that they have the Spirit, Luke doesn't tell us here, but he does tell us in other texts and acts, is that they spoke in, in other languages. Because what happened in Jerusalem happened again and again and again. So we believe they laid hands on them to receive, and suddenly this language comes out, just like happened uh, years ago when they were in Jerusalem and first received the Spirit. And so some people think that this is two stages of you becoming a Jesus follower, salvation and separately baptism in the Holy Spirit. I, I personally don't hold to that, and as a community we don't hold to that. Uh, because again, look in Acts again and again and again, you don't see the same thing happening. Luke, I think, gives us on purpose various ways that the Spirit comes to remind us you can't put God in a box. You just can't. And we want to make God a formula. We want, want, we want to make God five steps, and it doesn't work that way. The Spirit comes as the Spirit comes. And, and, and when he comes, you just celebrate that. So I don't think he's saying some have the Spirit and, and some don't. If you grew up in a Pentecostal tradition, which I did, that was what I was taught. That yes, you love Jesus, but there's this second experience. Now, I'm not saying that the Spirit does not come in waves. I'm not saying that when you receive Jesus, that's it and there's no more. I think that because the Spirit is a person and the person is relational, you should expect, when you get married, is the wedding day good? Yes, I, well, I hope for you. It was great for me. But is that the only experience? No. The wedding day is assigned to a relational marriage where you have highs and lows. And I think it's the same thing with the Spirit. We should expect the Spirit to come again and again. But I don't think in this confirming way where someone needs to lay hands on you and thus give you the Holy Spirit. What I actually think Luke is doing here, and there's lots of scholars who, who, who see this as a trajectory, is that it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the Samaria thing. I want us to get this. A thousand years of conflict. A thousand years of conflict between a group that should have been brothers and sisters. So what does the gospel do? The gospel brings people who have nothing in common and brings them into family relationship. And so the Jews had received the Spirit, and the Jews had received Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah. But what's going to happen to the people in Samaria? Because they have such relational conflict, and they don't see eye to eye on anything. This is what I think the Spirit does. This is my opinion, but I think it's based on enough uh, evidence from the text. I think that the Spirit waits for a moment until Peter and John to come so that you can never have a first-class and a second-class Christian. Here's what would have happened. If they received a Spirit laid hands by Philip, what would have happened in the church is there probably would have been a split. Those who really have the Holy Spirit are connected to Peter and John because they follow Jesus. But you have this experience from Philip, who's just a, a smaller leader in a smaller way. And I think it would have brought a wedge. But I think in this one case, and you don't see this again, the Spirit delays, so to speak, 
so that the same experience that happened in Jerusalem with Peter and John is the same experience that happens in Samaria. Somebody's saying, why is that important? Because what God is trying to do is not have a Jerusalem church, a Samaria church, a Rome church, an Ephesus church, a Corinth church. He's trying to build a Jesus church. And in order for there to be one church, he starts with the most gnarly divide. The most difficult relational tension is between Jew and Samaritan, and they should have been brother and sister. But because they had such a rift, the Spirit comes through Philip and then through Peter and John. Notice Peter and John don't preach the gospel to him again. They just see that something's missing and the Spirit comes. So now, from day one, those in Samaria can say, just like our brothers and countrymen in Jerusalem, we receive the same Spirit, same gospel, same power. So there could be one church and not a splintered church. The enemy wants to keep us divided while Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is drawing us close. And so what's happening here early on in the community is they're receiving the Spirit together. Now, is it all perfect? And is it all like just bliss and glee? Absolutely not. This divide is broken. The Spirit comes. But look at what's happening in this community. Verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying hand of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom... I lay my hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon is baptized. Simon is in this group, and Simon sees that that Peter and John have power. Now remember where Simon comes from. In the first century, if you wanted to receive more power from another god, you could buy off someone and have them show you the tricks. So he's just doing what he knows to do. Simon, who has power, wants more power. And so he offers these leaders money. And look at what he says in verse 19. He said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, may your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So you have a church that's divided because Jerusalem and Samaria is divided. Spirit comes, but even in the coming of the Spirit, even in the pushing of the mission forward, you just need to know this, that in the middle of that, there are still those that have yet to really receive. We don't know exactly when, when those people who listened to Philip, when were they fully, 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 fully part of the family of God? They believed on the gospel. You think it's then, but then Peter and John lay hands and they received the Spirit. We don't know all the details, but we do know that Simon is in the church, so to speak. Simon is baptized in water, Simon says he believes, but Luke doesn't tell us in Acts what exactly he believes. So I think because of Peter's rebuke, it's pretty clear that Simon is in the church, but not part of the people of God. He's in the building, but he's not been born 
again. He's in the community and, and he's seen as one of the people, maybe even one of the leaders or emerging potential leaders, but he's not saved. And so we see that the Spirit comes not to bring division, but to bring wholeness. And when the Spirit comes, the Spirit exposes people who are off. So Peter, who has the Holy Spirit, can say in verse 23, I see, he doesn't know him, I see you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. He has discernment from the Spirit to see where Simon is really at. Simon answered, pray the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. And that's the end that we hear about Simon. We won't hear about him again. Does he respond in in true faith to Jesus? We have no idea. But what we do know is verse 25. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel and many Samaritan villages. So Simon is an example that you can hear the message. You can even be baptized in water. You can follow all the religious form and yet not be truly converted, which is scary. And I would suggest, because I travel a bit, and I've traveled a bunch across the U.S., I think that there are huge swaths of people, I'm not being judgmental, but huge swaths of people who go to church week in and week out, who own Bibles, who listen to Christian radio, who read Christian material, who go to Christian conferences, who have not been born again. They're like Simon. They're in it and around it, but there's still bitterness in the heart. There's still deceit in the heart, and they don't have the Spirit of God like Simon did not have the Spirit of God. Third thing that we're reminded of in this text is that God's power is never for sale. It's all grace. Simon shows his hand because he wants to be someone. He doesn't want to lose his spot. He wants the limelight. He wants to be in the position he was before, but now with Jesus on his side. And it exposes soul. Anything that God does that's of value in a community is all come out of grace. You don't earn, let's just say, well, I want to be a leader in the church. You don't get it by being in church X amount of Sundays a week over time. Then you qualify to be a leader. You don't, you don't do it by going to seminary or classes or get further training. All that stuff is good. You don't, you don't earn God's power. And this is a subtle thing. None of us would be foolish enough to try to buy off God this way. But we do it in a more subversive way. Lord, I commit, I will fill in the blank. Lord, I, I, I'll read my Bible every day. Lord, I, I, I'll, I'll pray a little bit harder. Lord, Lord, I, I'm going to try. Lord, I, I'll be more generous. And if I do those things, God, then I'll be in a position to be useful And Jesus reminds us, it's all grace. So more prayer is a good thing, but it doesn't get us God's power. And more Bible reading and more study and and, and more intention, all that is good. I'm saying go for that. But there is a subtle deception, and Simon had it. He thought he could buy off God, when really it's all grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's by grace you've been saved. Simon missed that. It's by grace that you've been saved. Through faith, this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God's prepared stuff for us, but we don't earn that. Anything of value just comes out of the overflow of God's grace. So our work is simply a response. When God does something in your soul, it should motivate you to want to do something about it. God, thank you. You've been so good to me. Lord, if there's anything I could do to partner with you for the good of other people, I want to do it. 
But Simon had that subtle religiosity that's still alive and well. The subtle religiosity that says, I don't really want the transformation, but I do want the power. I don't really want the life change, but I do want to look good. I, 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 don't, I don't really want all of that Jesus stuff. I really want my own sin. But my wife's a Christian, or my husband's a Christian, or my kids are Christian, so I want to fit in. And we try to subtly buy off God when God instead offers grace. Now, by the way, if you're thinking like, wow, I could never be like Philip and be used by God. Philip was used and some people were born again. But by the way, the Samaritans remained. As a matter of fact, Steve Marshman, one of our elders, he was in Jerusalem a couple of years ago and he said he met one of the leading priests of the Samaritans. 2,000 years later, the Samaritans are still there. Now, there's only about 700 of them, but they're still worshiping on Mount Gerizim. And they still ignore Jesus and they still follow their traditions. It's a good reminder that even when God graces us to do things, we don't get everything done. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's a superhero. So even while Philip and Peter and John are there, some of the city is turned around, but not everyone. And shouldn't that encourage us? Don't give up. Don't give up. God may be using you in small ways. You're like, I want the big ways. Even in Samaria, some did not believe. So there's room for us. There's grace for us. So Stephen does his part. Philip does his part. George Verwer does his part. Penny Stady does her part. The question is this morning, what does it look like right now for you to step in and do your part? What does it mean for you to do your part? Remember, the story of Philip is not just about one guy preaching in Samaria. It's about you and I being useful to Jesus in big ways and small ways. What does it mean for you to do your part? We're going we're gonna to pause uh, before the worship happens and take a few moments and listen because God may be wanting to get our attention even this morning right here. And we don't want to jump to the next thing and miss it. Maybe God's going to confirm some things he's been doing in your soul about where you need to step out in faith. Maybe God's going to bring some new ideas to your mind. Maybe it's like that email like that she got out of left field and Maybe even today you're going to get that email out of left field, but maybe the Spirit can speak something to you. There are lots of stories. I'm going to share one, and then we're going to pause and be quiet for a bit and pray and let the Spirit speak to us. Uh, some dear friends, some of my dearest friends here in the community, Tony and Beth Avidisich, they're, they're seated right over here. Uh, Tony was one of the elders at Westside, and when we talked about launching Sunset, they prayed and, and said their family was called to leave Westside and join us here uh, to start this church three years ago. So for about three and a half, four years, Tony and I have worked together on the leadership team trying to build out what you see here. But from day one, Tony's always been working for Intel, 20 some odd years, 27, 28 years working at Intel. From the first time I met him, he'd been praying, when Intel is over, Lord, what's next for me? He'd been praying this for years, knowing it would eventually come to a close, God, what's the next open door? So you don't know, but we've been praying as elders and leaders for Tony and Beth. They've been pursuing some opportunities uh, where their kids live in Colorado. They've been pursuing opportunities here, and there's been no open door yet. A couple weeks ago, a door out of left field comes up. You're going to laugh. It's at a church that you and I have heard of called Westside. Uh, Westside just had one of their leaders, Todd Newell, 
uh, step away to pursue what he believes is God's calling back in the area of finance. And there's just a lot of leadership um, opportunities there. And they've been praying, Lord, who is it that, that you're raising up to come and fill in this huge gap? And so, so Tony comes and like, man, this is me. Like this opportunity, this open door. But that would mean leaving like sunset, leaving the family to be a part of the extended family at Westside. And so with joy, uh, we're going to talk about it in a couple weeks on their last Sunday somewhere in June. But I thought it would be good to throw it out there this morning for you to thank God and pray. God leads people. So some of you are here, and this is hard, but you're here for a season. God's going to send you out. And so we rejoice in that. It's not about us. It's about the king who sends his people, sometimes through persecution, sometimes through earthquakes, sometimes through, through a career change. And uh, Tony and Beth can be serving starting July 1 in, uh, on staff at Westside. And, and we love it and hate it. But we rejoice in it. They'll be around afterwards if you want to chat with them and find out some of the details. I don't even know Tony's exact title. So this is all like totally fresh. The Spirit speaks. What part are you going to play?